Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So I'd like to continue our exploration of equanimity today by looking at how how we apply this understanding and practice to uh, the events and relationships of our life. Yesterday we looked at uh, the changing conditions of life, how they come and go on kind of a macro level. And then we looked at the uh, internal experience of uh, contact and feeling at the six sense doors and how equanimity can be established with the arising of pleasant or unpleasant feelings at each of the sense doors. So for me, both of those understandings and perspectives get kind of integrated and applied in the the teachings and the practice of equanimity as what's uh, referred to in the Buddhist tradition as a Brahma-vihara, which is translated alternately as a divine abiding, uh, a sublime state, heavenly abode, um, more colloquially translated as our best home. So Brahma means highest, sublime, or best, And vihara literally means a home, a dwelling place. So these are the places in our heart that are like our our most ideal and best home. And as my friend and colleague Sharon Salzberg likes to say, like any home, we're not there all the time. But we know what it's like to be home. We feel relaxed, we feel at ease, we don't need to pretend. We feel like ourself. There's a sense of openness and connection, uh, warmth. So as many of you know, these, these, there are four of these uh, sublime states or best homes, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, celebrating and rejoicing in the happiness of others, and equanimity. And this particular factor of equanimity uh, is is, um, part of what makes the other Brahma-viharas so potent. In this sense, equanimity is a kind of impartiality that relates to other beings um, evenly, without a sense of strong preference. If you've ever been around anyone who has this quality of equanimity and impartiality, it can be quite remarkable and refreshing. Someone who treats everyone with kindness, respect, attention, and love. The people who are close to them and strangers, people they don't know, even people who maybe are not so kind to them. Just there's that sense of treating everyone with the same level of care and respect. So this is a quality of equanimity or an aspect of equanimity, this impartiality. 
And we do this in part for, in service of our own well-being because those, that way of relating feels better. It's more freeing and open and nourishing for our own hearts rather than the sense of being cramped and narrow and picking and choosing and having these people who I like and those people I don't like and treating everyone differently. And so this aspect of impartiality is what allows the other Brahma-viharas to become what are known as boundless states. So loving kindness becomes uh, fully manifest in a limitless state because of equanimity, because of this factor of impartiality, of not picking and choosing, then our love can be shared and spread widely and freely to those we like and know, those who we don't know, who are kind of just strangers, and even those we have difficulties with that our love can be shared uh, with all. Same thing with compassion and sympathetic joy. So where, where does this, this aspect of equanimity come from and, and what, are its, what are its kind of qualities and how do we practice it, how do we cultivate it? So impartiality is one aspect of it. Another aspect is a a deep kind of trust and almost a generosity in allowing one another to be in the unfolding events of our lives. There's a deep sense of trust that Each of us is doing the best we can in our life and uh, a kind of understanding that we each have to work out our own uh, challenges. It's not that we, we don't offer and receive help, but that there are limits to that. So this is... um, this is a short passage from Ajahn Sachito in his, uh, in his, this is from an essay, from, from an article that he has on his website called Cultivating Empathy, which is about the four Brahma Viharas that I, I highly recommend if you're not familiar with it. So he writes, Upeka, equanimity, carries trust. It's accompanied by the understanding that we all have to work with our own impulses, habits, and attitudes. In this process, equanimity sustains the empathy that keeps the heart open and allows us to grow. It trusts that we can be who we are and go through what we need to in order to grow. Equanimity maintains confidence in being empathically present with one another. We trust this mindful presence of heart to have, it effect, have its effects. With some stuff, you just don't know what to do. All you can do is to be present with it and just not keep adding more to it. This is upeka, to others as to oneself. So here we can see it's, this qual- it's the same quality of the heart that we've been exploring that allows things to be as they are, allows the unfolding of events and conditions in our life, 
in our body, in our mind, that stays present, open, connected empathically with them without needing to manipulate, control, or resist them. And specifically, as a Brahma Vihara, this, is, this gets applied to our relationships in life, which is one of the areas that we can tend to get really tripped up and suffer. The ways in which we so wish others would do certain things for themselves or for us, and we can't make them. The ways we wish that we would do certain things for ourselves or others, and somehow can't bring ourselves to at certain times. So where does this kind of balance come from? Where does this space of an open, allowing trust, as Ajahn Suchito says, where does this come from? So as we, as we explored yesterday, equanimity is, is a balance that's born of wisdom. So this capacity to stay present and engaged without the push and pull comes from understanding. And what does equanimity understand? So yesterday, what's the main thing that we looked at that equanimity understands? If you had to summarize it, change. Everything that arises will pass away. Equanimity understands change. That's one thing that wisdom that the, the wisdom understands that equanimity is based on. The other thing that, that the wisdom understands that gives rise to equanimity is that life is a process, is a natural process of unfolding conditions. Another way of putting this is that the universe is lawful. That there are certain natural laws that govern life, existence. It's not random. It's not random and it's also not, it's not predetermined. Like everything is fated in destiny. There's, there's no being directing events, saying you're going to get this much and you're going to get that much, or you're not going to get any. But life is a process that follows certain natural laws. And that everything that happens arises due to those, the functioning of those laws. And this understanding uh, is part of what allows us to rest at peace with events in life. And so this is the understanding of uh, what's known in the Buddhist tradition as kamma, or karma. So kamma is Pali, karma is Sanskrit, same word. The Dalai Lama is quoted as once having said, it's more important to understand karma than to understand emptiness. It's more important to understand karma than to understand emptiness. Why? Because karma, which literally means action, is what creates the stuff of our life. It's what determines our trajectory. And the, the, 
the most basic way of putting it is that what we do matters. Our choices in life have effects. That which we consciously and intentionally choose will produce results. It was a very basic understanding. And it goes against certain notions or beliefs that we might carry about life. Either that we're not in control, a kind of feeling of helplessness, that I can't do anything, I can't affect change. Um, Or as I said, that everything is predetermined, destiny, there's a, one of the most common misunderstandings of the teachings of karma is that is this kind of predeterministic view that, well, it's all, it's all my karma. Everything that's happening is because of my past karma. So this is just, I just need to let this happen. So the teachings on karma um, are, are more subtle than that. It's not that everything that happens in the present is due to our past actions. That's not the understanding in the Buddhist tradition. There are many other factors that might determine what's happening in the moment. Our past actions are only one of many factors. So, for example, there's one text in which uh, somebody comes to the Buddha and says, you know, is it true that all painful and unpleasant feelings we experience in life are due to our past actions. And the Buddha says, no, that's not true. Sometimes we experience unpleasant things, painful feelings, due to, you know, different biological causes, having, like, imbalances in, the, in our, the various systems of our body. Uh, We might experience unpleasant feelings due to the weather, due to the atmosphere, the environment that we're in. We can experience painful or unpleasant feelings um, just by chance, being in the wrong time at the wrong place, being in a natural disaster or being robbed or attacked by bandits or, you know, might just be different events. So um, this particular teaching of the Buddha in the sutta later in the commentaries gets kind of systematized and codified and talking about the different laws that govern life. Um, the laws of nature in terms of physics and chemistry, you know, law, which including the laws of gravity and thermodynamics and so forth, the uh, laws of biology in terms of genetics, There's the, uh, the way, the laws of psychology, the ways our mind function, the way thoughts and emotion function, just based on the way we're built, that thoughts move at a certain speed and have certain effects and impacts. So there's kind of a hardware on which life is running, both internally and externally, right? There's certain fundamental principles and laws that material form and biology operate on. And a lot of what we experience in life is just due to the the unfolding of those natural laws. And one of those laws is the law of karma, which is this understanding that 
intentional actions have results. That which we do consciously, volitionally, intentionally will produce an effect in the, in the immediate, in the near future, or at some distant time in the future. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier this morning, these teachings aren't um, meant to be believed. It's not something that we sign up for. It's meant to be investigated. It's meant to be examined in our own experience to see, does this make sense? Does this match my experience? And what's the result? If I, if I think and perceive and act according to these perspectives, how does this affect my life? Is this beneficial or not to myself and others? So the fundamental um, premise of the law of karma is that we live in a moral universe, that our actions, our intentional actions, carry a certain kind of valence to them based on the quality of our intention. So if I, there's a famous uh, verse from the Dhammapada, I think it's one of the first verses in the first chapter that says, um, everything is, and I'm going to paraphrase here, everything is constructed and made by the mind and the heart. If one thinks and speaks with an unhealthy motivation in the mind, then suffering follows one as surely as the wheel of the cart follows the ox. All things are constructed and made by the heart and mind. If one thinks and speaks with a healthy motivation in the heart, then happiness follows as surely as one's shadow which never departs. So when we don't need to look far to investigate this premise. Just consider, how does it feel to act in body, in word, or even in thought based on greed or stinginess or hatred? What is the, what's the residue? What's the impression or the tone of those motivations in the heart and the mind? For me, those kinds of intentionalities, that particular valence, has a feeling of being tight or cramped or narrow or agitated. It's not peaceful. How does it feel to act from a place of generosity or kindness or compassion or clarity or patience? those particular qualities of heart have a different impression. They leave a different residue in the mind, both in the moment of acting and afterwards. They have a quality of ease, of brightness, of dignity and self-respect. They feel good. They have a pleasant tone to them. So right there, in the very moment of acting, we can see this principle operating. That which we do consciously and intentionally has an effect, has an immediate effect on the, the inner atmosphere of our heart and mind. And the understanding in the Buddhist tradition is that it also has an effect in the future, that it lays down certain tendencies in the mind and bears some kind of fruit.
So one of the uh, one of the aspects of this teaching that I find very inspiring. is that we can, we can affect the trajectory of our life based on the choices we make here and now. Because actions have effects, because what we do matters, we can steer in life. So the present moment, what we're experiencing now, each of us, is the result of past actions. You're here in this room because of so many things that happened, going all the way back to the Big Bang, right? Each moment, each present moment is the result of a countless infinite number of past causes, right? That, that have come together to this particular moment. So the present is preconditioned based on past, but what happens next is not based on the choices intentionally that we make in the present, we can steer. If that weren't the case, awakening wouldn't be possible. If everything was predetermined, we couldn't couldn't ever change the mind. We couldn't change the trajectory of our life. We couldn't change our habits or responses, the way we relate to things, the quality of understanding with which we live. So the past is preconditioned, but the future is not predetermined. The future is is unknown, and it's based in part, it's conditioned in part by the choices we make here and now. I had a very powerful insight into this in my early 20s. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, um, a good portion of my 20s, there was a lot, of, a lot of angst, a lot of uncertainty, and, you know, uh, where am I going? Who am I? What do I want to do? How do I want to contribute to the world with all of the suffering that's happening, um, both on kind of a short-term level, like what will I do next month, and more on a long-term level. In terms of, you know, do I want to, what kind of career path do I want to have? I, you know, quite fortunate to have had choices in my life, to have been given a good education and to have not been saddled with a lot of debt. So I had choices about what to do with my time. So a lot of angst about the future, a lot of uncertainty and fear and anxiety. And I was sitting in meditation retreat with the Vietnamese teacher and Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, at one point in one of his talks, he said, why do you worry about the future? The best way to take care of the future is to take care of the present. Because the future will be the result of the present. And it went in, in that way that we can hear something over and over again, but sometimes the conditions change and we just really hear it. And I just understood, I can't control the future, but I can do something about what's happening now. How I relate to life in this moment 
is what will condition the future. The very choices I make about how I show up, how I think and speak and act right now, are what creates my future. This is the teaching of karma. What we do and say matters. It has effects. And that we, will, we inherit those effects. We will have to live with the consequences of our choices. And we all know this. We all know this, but we forget. Somehow we live in this delusion that, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, ah, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It doesn't matter. Right? And then you wake up the next morning, and it matters. Right? We inherit the results of our actions. So you stay out late drinking one night, you feel it the next morning. Right? If you put off a project, and you put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off, that has an effect. You know, I was, my body has been very strict with me in life, in my adult life at least, in terms of what I put in very clearly has effects. You know, and so on a very direct level, the laws of biology show us that our actions have effects. And it applies on the level of the heart and the mind. That which we do and say consciously and intentionally will have an effect. It will have a result. So how do we begin to practice with this? How does this translate to equanimity? A lot of meditation practice, a lot of the cultivation of wisdom is learning where we have jurisdiction over. It's learning what the limits of our influence and control are. So again, Ajahn Chah's famous teaching about the, the glass, the cup, this cup is already broken. Right? So there's an understanding there of the limits of control, that one does not control the laws of nature. Everything that is compounded will one day disintegrate. That's natural laws, the law of uh, entropy. Everything that comes together will come apart. So wisdom understands that this natural law, that each of us creates our life through our choices, means that ultimately, what I have the most influence over are my choices. And I have less influence over your choices. That you are the owner of your actions. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your choices, not my wishes for you. This is the understanding of karma. It's not cold or nihilistic. It doesn't mean we don't care. It just means that we recognize the limits of our control, the limits of our influence, that the universe is unfolding due to certain natural laws. Just, just as water will boil at a certain temperature and freeze at a certain temperature, the choices we make in our lives will lead us down different directions. 
And so a lot of our relational suffering, particularly the intimate relationships in our life, comes from not really deeply recognizing this truth, that we can't control anyone. We can't make our choices for each other. We ha- each of us has to live our own life and make our own choices and live with the results of those choices. And this is hard. This is painful to accept because we so wish that we could, you know, just download what I understand and see to you so that you won't need to make those mistakes and learn them for yourself. Right? But no one can do that. Even the Buddha couldn't do that. Even the Buddha could not take away someone else's karma. He says, I point out the way. You have to walk the path. So the delusion that we can somehow keep one another safe, that we can somehow... take away another person's suffering or make them do anything is based on the fiction of being the center of the universe and somehow being in control and that the world will fit our preferences. So here again, we come back to this understanding of equanimity that it's not about have, it's it's not that we don't have preferences. I would much prefer that my loved ones not suffer. I would much prefer that those in power make choices that protect life on the planet, that steward resources in a sustainable way for future generations. And I recognize the limits of my control. That That we're part of a larger whole and a lot of the context of our life is outside of our control. That everything is unfolding due to a vast web of causes and conditions. And since we don't control that web, since we don't control that context, there's only so much influence we can have. We do have some influence. But wisdom doesn't overestimate the amount of influence we have. When we overestimate how much influence we have, that leads to stress, that leads to suffering and friction. Equanimity recognizes the domain of our influence. And everything beyond that, there's acceptance, there's letting go. There are two things in my life that have taught me the most about this aspect of equanimity. And the first is my health. I, I mentioned yesterday that I had some kind of chronic digestive stuff come up in my early 20s that kind of continues in various ways to this day. Um, that's well managed. Uh, so in my, in my mid-30s, I was at the monastery in Canada, and uh, about a week before I left, I got bit by a tick and got Lyme disease and a couple of co-infections, and I was quite sick for about two or three years, 
with, with Lyme. I'm, I'm well now, thankfully. Um, but, um, you know, I'd been at the monastery for about eight months. I'd been very careful. It was a week before leaving. There were a lot of conditions. And um, I did not want to be sick. I didn't want it to be true. And my mind rebelled against the reality of what was happening, you know? I would go back and play over and over again the night before finding the tick embedded in my leg. And if only I had done this, if what if I had done that, and why didn't I do this, and right, the way we can obsess over something. And it was such a deep teaching in equanimity, in recognizing I can't edit the universe. I don't have that power. This is the way it is. This is the way it is, what's happening now. And to see the suffering from resisting the truth of the present, the truth of the conditions that I was facing. That the real suffering was not really from the illness. It had its own level of discomfort and pain and suffering. The real suffering was going back into the past and wishing it were otherwise or fearing the future. And to practice with equanimity, with the acknowledgement, this is the way it is. Now. It could not have been otherwise. The causes and the conditions were such that this is how events unfolded. It could not have been otherwise. Because if it could have been, it would have been. It wasn't. That doesn't mean I didn't do everything in my power to get well. It didn't mean I didn't take action. It just meant that resistance, that fighting against the truth of things, dissolves. So we turn towards what's happening on our planet. The destruction of the very ecosystems that support life as we know it very painful. The heart resists. The heart says, no, I don't want this to be happening. And it is. This is the truth. This is the reality. It's not that we don't have a preference. It's not that we don't do everything in our power to heal the illness. But it's coming from a different place. It can come from a place of acceptance. Acceptance does not mean that we condone the actions of others. It's a momentary acceptance. It's, it's, it's a sense of being at peace with the truth of things because this is the way it is. So the other thing that's taught me the most about equanimity is my immediate family. And learning to be with the helplessness, the feelings of helplessness, of loving someone and not being able to take away their suffering. Knowing that, you know, we can't save anyone. You can, as the saying goes, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And anyone who has family members who suffer from addiction, or if you've suffered from addiction yourself, knows this quite well. And again, it doesn't mean we don't do everything in our power to help. It doesn't mean we're not available, 
that we don't respond and act, it means that we understand the limits of our control. That we understand all beings are the owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their choices, not my wishes. I can't make your choices for you. And you can't make my choices for me. There's a profound recognition of our autonomy and a deep sense of love and acceptance in that. So within this process, again, just as yesterday, we were working with unpleasant sensation. And it was talking about this principle of balance. Don't go in if you can't come out. Make sure you have enough resource, right? If you've got enough resources, the conditions are right, then you, you bring awareness to the edge of the unpleasant sensation. And then you hold awareness there. Sometimes you step back and take a break. You come back in again. And allow the mind and the heart to go through what it needs to go through. The like, I don't like this, I don't like this, I want it to go away. Okay, okay, relax. But I don't like it. Okay, relax, right? It kind of like, it's like getting into hot water. You know, you go and it's like, oh, that's hot. Oh, that's hot. And then slowly relax and kind of like settle into it. You can be with it. So this same process occurs in the heart with those that we love who are suffering or others in our lives to bring awareness to that point of contact that, said, that wishes it were otherwise, that fights against the reality. If that's what's happening, that's the truth of things, if the heart is resisting and fighting. And so the practice of equanimity in this domain includes making space for whatever we're feeling. It includes making space for the sadness and the mourning, for the tears and the pain. It includes making space for the anger and the rage. It includes making space for the numbness and the indifference to hell with you, right? It doesn't mean suppressing or avoiding those things because they're not spiritual or I'm reacting or this is the second arrow, I shouldn't be feeling this. All those ways we use the teachings to distance ourselves from what we're actually feeling. No, equanimity means we include all of it. Make the mind like space. Enough space to hold everything and to be with the unfolding of that process as the heart learns to be with the truth of things. Riding the ups and downs of those reactions. Staying balanced. You know, stepping back regrouping when we need to, and then coming back in, feeling what's happening. So the Buddha had two very, very close friends in his life, Sariputta and Moggallana. These were uh, two of his followers who were his chief disciples were with him from the very beginning of his uh, teaching. And uh, both Sariputta and Mughalana passed away before the Buddha, these two very dear friends of his. And uh, he talks about in one of the suttas the experience of losing them, 
And he says, looking out at the assembly of monks and nuns after Sariputta and Moggallana had died, he said, it's, it's like the assembly is empty with them gone. He said, it's like, it's just as if the largest branch would break off of a great tree. Even so, looking out at this assembly, it appears empty to me now that Sariputta and Moggallana are gone. You can feel the sense of loss. And then, he says, it is wonderful, it is amazing that when such a pair of disciples have passed into final Nibbana, they were said to be arhats, so when they died, their stream of their karma was fully extinguished, not to be reborn again. There is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. The mind remains equanimous. So there can be both. There's enough space for the sense of loss, which is human. This is one of the laws of, that govern our lives. It's part of our genetics and our DNA. We are social creatures that bond. It is inevitable that we will experience grief and loss when those we love depart. And yet the mind can remain equanimous, mindfully aware and balanced, even in the face of emotion. So the practice of equanimity in this regard is done with a repetition of certain wisdom phrases that help to align our heart with this particular perspective that recognizes the truth, the laws of karma, that we each have our own path which are unfolding. And so if you look at the handout that you received this morning. You will see a series of phrases. And and each kind of grouping of phrases captures a different facet or aspect of this understanding. So the the first few capture this sense of, I want you to be happy, but I can't make your choices for you. I care for you, but I can't keep you safe. I can't keep you from suffering. Or just simply put, all beings have their own path. You have your path, and I have my path. And I care for you. That both are true the sense of autonomy, that we each are the owners of our actions and inherit its results, and there can still be care. The, uh, the second set of phrases there at the bottom reflect more the sense of often for one's own life, reflecting on our own, the unfolding of events in our own lives, inheriting the results of our past actions or the conditions of our lives, Again, recognizing not everything we experience is due to our past actions. So that stuff that says, oh, if you got cancer, it's because you, that's, forgive me, that's BS. That's the laws of biology. 
our bodies get sick. That's what bodies do, right? So it's not that everything we experience is the result of some past action. Right? There are many, many causes and conditions. And we can't know. We can't know what's producing what effect. But what we can know is that what we do here and now will determine the trajectory in the future. And that's the point of karma, is to pay attention to how we are living in this moment because it's laying down the potentials and the uh, directions of the rest of our life. So the second set of phrases points to this capacity to be at peace and accept the truth of things as they are in this moment. This is the way it is. As Ajahn Sumedho says, it's like this now. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Let it be as it is. So you can so these are wisdom reflections. These align the heart with this particular perspective that understands and recognizes life is unfolding due to natural causes. The more I resist and fight, the more I suffer. The more I allow the heart to be at peace with things, the more space and energy I have to actually respond wisely. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.